G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, where we're wrapping up the month of May. Dave, I can't believe we're wrapping up the month of May. It's a little bit scary. It's going to be winter in like three, four days' time. Oh, well, look, not just winter, but in a few days' time, it's actually my birthday. Uh, well, yes, mine too, actually, at the end of Is that week. right? <laughs> yes, uh, Saturday, oh, a week from today. A week from today. A week, well, we're recording on the Saturday. It'll be my birthday on Tuesday. Oh, there you go. I didn't realise we're only like four or five days apart. Yeah, 29th of May for me, and you must be the something of uh, June. The 2nd of June. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, it's a good time of year. <laughs> it is, although I'm very used to my birthdays always being about negative two. <laughs> we just have to move to Sydney, Dave. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've got a very uh, interesting show planned today, Dave, because it's a little different to what we normally do. Look, it is. Look, sometimes we talk about a character or an era, but sometimes we do talk about a more esoteric or intangible sort of topic, as do other podcasts. And there are many podcasts on, you know, politics and Doctor Who, for example, or a bit of an ideological or philosophical approach to the topic. And I guess this is a bit more what we're doing this week, because we're going to talk about queerness in Doctor Who. Mm. Yeah, in, in all its different forms, whether it's actors on the show or in perhaps in uh, other media like books or, um, you know, other, other ways that might have come into the show. Yeah, we've got some serious points to make. We've got some hopefully fun points to make. And look, at the end of the day, we're just going to chat about it and then see what the audience says back to us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I will say we've had a lot of audience reaction, you know, when we threw it out, you know, what topic we were doing. Some people have given us some good comments that we'll be reading later in the show, too. Yes, it does seem to have uh, energised and engaged a few people, which is always a good thing. Hmm. Now, before we get to that, of course, we'll have our news roundup and we'll do some short topics. So shall we rip into the news, Dave? Absolutely. What have you got for us, Rob? Dave, to kick us off, I've got that more than 500 classic Doctor Who episodes are about to be streamed on Twitch TV. This sounds really exciting, but for me to properly respond, you're going to have to tell me something, Rob. And what's that, Dave? What is Twitch TV? <laughs> Twitch TV is an online video um, sort of service. Normally, though, you know, it, it can be used like YouTube. And in this case, it is being used like YouTube. You know, they're putting content up and people can watch it. But normally on Twitch TV, you would watch people playing video games live, perhaps. You know, that concept of when people stream their video gaming and, you know, very good gamers get lots of followers and people actually watching them game. I think it's the most boring thing in the world. I, I obviously come from the wrong generation because I think playing video games is more fun than watching people play video games. But I it's a whole thing absolutely no idea that that was a thing. It is a massive thing with the kids, Dave. They okay. love it. Okay, okay. Um, also on Twitch TV, I sometimes, because I follow a lot of video games, sometimes the developers of video games will get on there and do like live, you know, chats and things. Because one of the features of Twitch is that there's um, a live chat box on the side of the screen. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, game developers are doing a chat, people can ask some questions and get answers live and all this sort of stuff. So like Facebook Live. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. So the appeal here is, look, they're putting up 500 episodes uh, from the classic era. Doctors 1 through 7 will be featured. Uh, and people will be able to, you know, chat to each other live during the episodes. It's a good thing because although I sit here with a complete collection of DVDs and, you know, I won't stream a single one of these episodes, 
for people out there who don't have any DVDs or don't have them all or, you know, they're, they're new Who fans and they want to dip their toes, this is a really, really cool and interesting thing. So just to get this clear in my mind, is it a on-demand streaming service or is it at 2 p.m. on Saturday we will be showing the Aztecs Part 4? I believe they'll be showing things live, yep. but if but if they do it like Twitch normally does its content, you can watch things live, but then go back and watch a, a stream of it later. So they it, it may be the best of both worlds, but I'm not entirely sure. So like some of those YouTube videos where you can watch it live and the comments are as live, but you can then go back and watch a recording of it and the comments are also recorded. So you see the comments as they're being made or as they would have been made during the recording. That's right. So right. you don't try okay. and talk to those people because they're long gone. They're, they're yeah. in bed or <laughs> you know, they're doing <laughs> <Yeah>. something else. <laughs> okay. Well, I understand now. That is, uh, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So check it out, people. Starts on the 29th of May, just in time for my birthday. Clearly, they knew it was a good day. <laughs> Another piece of news, and this is more book news. And You know I always get excited by book news. Oh, yes. James Goss has got another project coming out. And he's co-writing a book with someone you've probably heard of. His name's Tom Baker. Hmm, Tom Baker. It rings a bell. Uh, <laughs> yes, apparently they are doing Doctor Who meets Scratchman. Oh, really? Yeah, it is up on Amazon now for pre-order. It's coming out on the 24th of January next year. So I imagine it's fairly early in production. But this, of course, is the... Uh, radio play slash movie script that Tom Baker and Ian Marta were developing back in the day That's and it never right. really went anywhere but yes apparently much like uh, the Cricketman book that James Goss adapted he's doing a version of Doctor Who meets Scratchman and it would seem that Tom Baker is in some capacity a co-author now whether that's him actually contributing to the writing or whether that's him handing over all the stuff he wrote back in the 70s or a bit of somewhere in between i'm not sure but yeah i'm very interested and excited by this one that is interesting i'm sure he's involved in some way but as he's proven on many of those dvd commentaries he doesn't remember a lot from the old days so you know he may be relying on what's written down more so than you know what he might have said to ian martyr in a pub in 1979 or something yeah but i, I can certainly imagine and i hope that there might be a thing where goss is sort of turning this outline into a book outline you know this is what happens in chapter one, chapter two, and him sitting down with Tom and saying, okay, it's not quite clear, you know, how, how was this meant to happen? And Tom could say, oh, well, what we imagined was this could happen, or, well, I don't remember what I wanted at the time, but mm. right now I'd say do it this way. <laughs> and then it has the Tom Baker seal of approval, no matter whether it's genuine or not. <laughs> exactly right. So we'll obviously hear more about that as we get close to the release date, but yeah, look, that's available for pre-order now. That's good. And James Goss is, is really proving himself in this area of taking the old material and, you know, I mean, with the cricket men, gosh, writing in Douglas Adams' style. And he pulled that off, which is quite something. Yeah, that was a really interesting readable book. So I think this could be a really fun one as well. Mm. All right, moving on. BBC America are looking to make a big video with Doctor Who fans in it. And uh, 
everyone out there can take part. Basically, they're wanting people to to send a message to Jodie Whittaker, and they say it could be as simple as saying, you know, hello, Jodie, welcome to Doctor Who, hopefully with a bit more enthusiasm than I just did it, or, uh, you know, maybe uh, baking a cake and taking a picture of it or writing something on the footpath and filming it, and they're going to cut this all together and make some sort of big, you know, welcome to Jodie video when... um, her first episode's going out and I thought that's a really nice thing I might actually do this I might like go down to the harbour and you know cheat a little and have a really good background behind me and you know say welcome Jody," and see if that makes it into the video it's really interesting the, the Americans are very good at engaging the audience in those sort of ways they use social media far better than I think certainly we do in Australia and the UK does as well uh, I don't know if it happens in the UK or here at all but I noticed that a number of US shows for example they'll have suggested Twitter hashtags mm. actually come up on screen as you're watching it so that you can engage that way. So, yeah, um, it's not something I would particularly do. It's not really my sort of thing, but it's going to engage a an audience and help to build up a bit of excitement and anticipation in the lead-up to the series being shown in America, and that's always a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree on the social media comment because there are talented social media people in this country. I've met some of them, you know, and and in the UK, I'm sure that's the case too. But it just seems, I don't know, it's probably a budget thing. You know, they've just got budget for digital producers and people to really go to town on this stuff in the the US compared to um, elsewhere. Uh, Yes, and I wonder if it's also a numbers thing as well because what you don't want is to have some sort of attempt at a twitter interaction and get you know four people commenting (laughs) yeah exactly right but going way way back there's been a number of auctions around doctor who lately but one we wanted to highlight is the original script for the tribe of gum by Mm. anthony coburn went under the auctioneer's hammer uh in the last couple of weeks and sold for us eight thousand four hundred yeah, which doesn't seem like a lot of money compared to what some items go for. But at the same time, I think that is actually still a, a real lot of money for it's something like that. It's a huge amount of money. And there's a photo of this actually in the New York Post article on it. And the script looks like it's 50 years old or more than 50 years old now. Almost 55, goodness. Yes. And, and, but apparently it was actually the one owned by William Hartnell and was found in the dumpster after he died and presumably Mrs. Hartnell was having the big sort of clear out a couple of years later and this was one of a number of items the contractors took out and in this case he gave it to his grandson who's now eight and a half grand richer. Yeah, gosh, I mean, can you imagine throwing that out? I know when people pass on, you know, there's often a big throw out of stuff but Doctor Who would have been quite a phenomenon by then. His wife, uh, Heather, it's Heather Hartnell, isn't it? His yes. wife. Yes. He- Heather, Heather would have known that. She would have known that he'd even been brought back for the three Doctors and you know, and all that sort of stuff. So you would like to think she would have thought, oh, maybe the BBC would like this or maybe a fan would like this, you know, because there was obviously fan mail going to the house all the time. Or maybe her grief was such that it was just, you know, get this out, throw it out. Yeah, it was purely just a practical thing of, look, I wouldn't mind doing something nice with this, but I don't know how, I don't know how to go about it. At the end of the day, it's just simple to clear the whole lot out. Yeah, gosh. wonder what else was in that skip. Yeah. Hmm. Now, moving on, final piece and a sad piece, uh, Graham Strong has uh, passed on and a lot of you out there, well some of you at least out there might not know Graham Strong, but Graham Strong back in the 60s, talking William Hartnell, uh, recorded a lot of 
classic Doctor Who episodes using a very precarious uh, setup, as I understand it. He'd, <laughs> he'd record under audio tape all these episodes, which uh, gave us, in the long run, a lot of audios of episodes that were missing. You know, a remarkable thing for him to have had the foresight to do, I, although I think at the time he was just doing it for himself, but in time it became this this big thing. And just recently I, I noticed that he'd handed on his archive of um, recordings uh, as well, and I thought, oh, that's that's a nice thing to do, and maybe it was because he was ill or knew something was up, because now he's uh, he's passed on, Dave. Yeah, it's, it is sad, because he is somebody that his name would not be familiar to most fans, but I know certainly, as, as I discussed or as we discussed in our fandom episode earlier this year, so many of those stories in the 60s I first came to via his audio recordings and a number of them, a number of real classics, real favourite stories of mine still now only exist in any real form as audios because of him. And when you think of stories like Marco Polo, Power of the Daleks, Evil of the Daleks, all these things, now whether you prefer them as BBC audios, whether you like them as recons, or animations or whatever, in many cases they exist because of him. And it I was really thinking about it the other day of just what it would be like if we didn't even have the audio of something like The Myth Makers or The mm. Daleks Master Plan or uh, The Macra Terror. You know, these would be missing to a whole new degree and it's really quite a substantial contribution he's made. Yeah, I, I remember growing up reading for the first time that there were missing episodes. The article or the, the piece, it might have been in like maybe one of the Peter Haining books, I really can't remember. It, it did mention though that all the episodes were available as audio. And at the time I assumed, oh, of course, the BBC would have had the audio of them. You know, the audio would be separate to the film perhaps and maybe that's why they had the audio. But then later I learned, no, it was just this guy hanging his microphone up in front of the, the TV cabinet and recording it, like extraordinary stuff. Yeah, and I believe on some of them, even sort of opening the back of the TV and plugging the, the cassette recorder into the works or something. Mm, yeah, I think later on that might have been what he was uh, doing too. And other fans as well. There were other fans who did this stuff. There were, but, there were. but he was like the, the face of it, the poster boy of it, if you will. Very, very much so. So that's the news, Rob. What short topics have we got to discuss before we get to our main feature? We've got a few, Dave. Um, the first one I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to bring up because last episode you said you'd watch Delta and the Bannerman and I said I'd watch Time Lash. This was based on our, you know, Guilty Pleasures episode. Yes. I have to come clean and say I've not watched Time <laughs> Lash. <laughs> Although I actually want to. I do want to. I just haven't done it. Well, I have watched Delta and the Bannerman. Okay. But shall we save that until you watch Time Lash? Yeah, let's do that. Let's let's save it. I will right. say though that I did watch some Blake Seven episodes. Oh, which ones? I watched Trial, Killer, and Hostage. There's two and a half very good episodes there. <laughs> that's uh, that's how I spent my time last weekend, and this weekend I just haven't got around to watching anything yet. So maybe I'll get to Time Lash even this weekend. It could be very close. Okay, well we'll hold that over for next week. Alrighty. Now, something that you have watched, and I know this because you've tweeted about it, is you've continued in Trial Watch. I have continued Trial Watch. I'm now 12 episodes in, only two to go. And I've got to say, I have really quite enjoyed Terror of the Vervoids. Yes. It is a fun story. I think it is probably Colin Baker's best story, as in the best one in which he plays the Doctor. His, his characterization there is really, really good. I think Bonnie Langford is actually really good in that. She struggles because her character 
just walks into the show with no introduction and no background and frankly no real character mm. other than she is just Bonnie Langford. But it is very refreshing though to have this character who is so happy and enthusiastic and, and, and buoyant. Uh, I do think that Bonnie isn't quite sure how to play it at times. I think her performance is very theatrical at times and that would I suspect be a combination both of her background and the fact that she's playing against Colin who is also mm. very theatrical. Um, you know, Colin always reminds me of one of those actors out of Blackadder, you know, still doing the whoa to me, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yes. Um, and then Bonnie's playing against that. But it, it was fun to watch. It looks really good. There's a lot of intelligence going on there. It, it is a Pip and Jane Baker script, and some of the dialogue is very unnatural. Mm. And there's a lot going on in there. But and, and I don't know whether it's too much or it would seem flat without it, but, for example, the plot where... Uh, Doland is driving the Hyperion 3 into the black hole of Tartarus. Lasts about six minutes. Then there's the Mogarians hijacking the Hyperion, and that goes for about four minutes. Mm. And you know, these whole subplots that you think of are just actually come and go really, really quickly. But it's very, yeah, very enjoyable. The trial stuff, however, look, I'm a fan. I've watched this show many times, and I'm still now, for me, the Mysterious Planet Part 1 is a distant memory. So I've no idea what a casual viewer would have been thinking at this point. And more and more, like, this idea of the Doctor's defence being something that's going to happen, um, like, Mm. it just makes no sense. And the the way that it's treated makes no sense. Even when you get to the end of the Doctor's, see, the Commodore asked me to help, therefore I'm a reformed character, and the the Inquisitor's like, well, I guess you're not guilty, then that's okay. And the Valiard says, well, hang on, let's just watch to the end of this story. <laughs> and uh, suddenly the Doctor's committed genocide. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. No, just, I don't know. Um, it confused me as a kid that, you know, this was from his future, so he hadn't met Mel yet, but he watches the episode and then she turns up later in Trial of a Time Lord and he goes off with her, but that's a future Mel that he hasn't met yet, but she's had all the past adventures with him. So when in his timeline does he actually meet her for the first time? I, I could never get my head around that. Yeah, no, no, presumably. And I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll be watching The Ultimate Foe in the next two weeks. Um, and then I might listen to Flight Through Entirety's reenaction of uh, the original part of 14 just to really <laughs> punish myself. But, yeah, he must he must leave this trial station, drop future Mel off, go and have more adventures, meet less future Mel, and eventually she... Like, like is, this, is, this, is this Mel taken away from... Um, after Dragonfire, is this like Mel, Pope, Mel and Glitz hanging around together, and that's where the master finds them? I don't know. Yeah, no, no idea. And just on Pip and Jane Baker, you know, there was that famous line on a Star Wars set when I think Harrison Ford said to George Lucas, "George, you can write this stuff, but you can't say it." And I think someone needed to say that to Pip and Jane Baker at some stage. Yeah, and there's times when Colin not struggles with it, but you see, he just doesn't know how to play it. And one of my favourite lines has got to be that that bit where he does the whole, the bogus Morgarian did not switch off his translator. (laughs) It's just so silly. (laughs) It is, it is. But it is a good story. I, I quite like it, as I've said on past episodes. And Mel... You know, although she confused me and, you, you know, with the way she comes in as a kid, when I look back on it now, I put that aside and I look at her enthusiasm. She wants to get out there and solve the mystery and she's actually quite dynamic and, and interesting. And it's like, yeah, she's better than I thought she was. 
she she's probably the first really positive, exciting character we've had really probably since Romana. Yeah. In, in terms of there just isn't either a sense of bitchiness or gloom or they're a little bit dodgy or they're a little bit grumpy. You know, even, even Perry, who starts her time wanting to go off and have adventures with the Doctor, just ends up being horribly molested every episode and not having mm. a great time. And mm. Yeah, so that, that is good. Nissa. Nissa's quite pleasant, but she's not very sparky. She just doesn't no. do much. No. no, no, I agree. All right, let's move on. I've thrown up some new reviews, uh, book reviews this time on policebox.net, which is my little side project I sometimes talk about. And I've just started reading The Clockwise Man, which is the first of six Christopher Eccleston um, new series adventures that came out uh, in 2005. Never read them before. And it's so much fun to go back and to just be reading this story with Eccleston and Rose, and it's like it's series one again. And the story's not bad either. Oh, okay. I'm not familiar. It's it's very character-driven. There's not a lot of action in it, and they're spending a lot of time in, you know, um, gentlemen's clubs. This is post-Russian Revolution, so there are displaced royalty getting around. There's a woman in a mysterious mask. There's some clockwork knights in armor. It's really curious, and it's very character-driven. Loads and loads of dialogue. Uh, very few action scenes. A couple of people have been killed, but that was almost inconsequential to people just sitting around playing chess and talking in gentlemen's clubs. It's it's really different, actually. Hmm, okay. Hmm. I, I haven't read it, so I don't have much to add, but it sounds interesting. Hmm, it is. Uh, one thing I haven't watched but listened to yes. is The Smugglers. Wow, okay. And I just want to ask this question to you, Rob, and to the listeners. Is this the most forgotten of all Doctor Who stories? Oh, either it or the Space Pirates or something. You see, even the Space Pirates at least has one episode. And I reckon if you went to a good number of classic fans and said what happens in the Space Pirates, they could at least tell you, oh, well, I know there are beacons and there are pirates stealing it and there's a space fleet and um, there's that guy with the bad American accent. They could at least tell you something. <laughs> yeah. How many fans do you reckon you could say, tell us the plot of the smugglers and they could get beyond about half a sentence? That's a really good point because I know I've read the Target novel, but I read it back when it came out, which would have been, I don't know, 1988 or something like that. About that, yep. And I honestly couldn't tell you anything about it. Mm. Uh, but I did quite enjoy it. It, it didn't blow me away as, as an historical. I'm a big fan of historicals. I enjoyed it. There's some good, fun characters. Hardmore is really strong in this. So this idea that he was you know, on his last legs and limping towards the finish line is completely nonsense he's very very strong and funny in this and that had quite a bit of a location shoot to it if i recall uh, yeah very much so it was down in cornwall i think and they had rowboats out there and night yeah. filming and stuff yeah 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 i know more about the filming than i do about the plot <laughs> yeah <laughs> how embarrassing uh, and and it's funny because i have listened to this before but not for a long time and even i forgot that there are smugglers and pirates. I, I always thought the pirates and the smugglers were the same people, but no, they're two distinct groups of mm. antagonists. Okay, so you recommend to the listeners? Look, it's kind of like listening to a whole new story. Well, that's a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Uh, but next on my list for the next month is the Crotons. Just, just flagging that out. Oh, God. Why, Dave? Why? Well, a few podcasts have actually been talking about it or reviewing it. And I, I made a comment about that on Twitter and... A few other people said, no, no, check it out. It's, it's better than you remember. So I'm going to, well, I'm not, I was about to say I'm going to put myself through the Crotons. I might be pleasantly surprised. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm going to check out the Crotons in the next couple of weeks. That's that's next on my watch list. Okay, good stuff. Now, shall we get on to the main topic of today's episode, Dave? Yeah, so we're going to be talking about what we're calling Queer Doctor Who. Now, this is designed to encompass sort of all of that rainbow sexuality spectrum of you know, difference. So gay, lesbian, bi, transgender, and all the rest of that. Um, I think we should just flag right at the, the, the side of this conversation, Rob. In terms of terminology, we are using queer in that sort of catch-all sense. Yes. Um, just because sometimes I think, you know, for, for listening purposes, it's very hard to do, you know, the full LGBTIQA, et cetera, et cetera, mm. uh, acronym every time. If sometimes we use other words, you know, whether we use gay or lesbian or queer or whatever, we're, we're meaning it sort of in that broad uh, spectrum of things. So please, please don't take us, you know, too critically on our exact use of language. We want to have a relaxed conversation. Mm. I think it's a good catch-all myself. Yeah, well, certainly I think it, it works well and I hope people understand that. But, mm. you know, so asking ourselves why we are, we're doing this, I think it is an interesting aspect of the show to look at. And it is another one of those esoteric and background ones like the ideas of religion in Who or politics in Who or conservatism in who, or radicalism in who, you know, all of these themes that you can draw out. And I think it's there. You know, there are certainly uh, gay and queer characters in there. There are gay, queer, lesbian people who've worked on the show and have certainly put that context in sometimes very overtly, um, particularly in the latest stuff, sometimes very subtly. Uh, and sometimes there are, there are some fun ideas you can explore in this as well. So I think it's for that reason, it's very worthy of it. And, and let's not pretend that you know, queerness hasn't been a a theme or a string that has flowed through fandom as well for, for decades. Oh, massively so. Absolutely. Uh, I can remember being 12 years old and going off to Sydney Uni Doctor Who uh, parties for the uh, fan club. And it was probably my first interactions with, you know, with, with older people and older people who were openly gay. You know, because um, at school, you know, everyone was my own age. But when I'd go to a, a party and I'd be sitting around with people who might be, you know, 10 years older than me, 20 years older than me and quite comfortable with being gay and they were out and everything. And it was really my first time, you know, sitting around having lunch with people like that, for example. Uh, I can remember that quite vividly as like a 12 year old. Yeah, that's I think that would be an experience for a lot of people in Doctor Who fandom. And it's not just here in Australia. If you read Richard Marsden's. Uh, book on JNT, the interactions he has there with a large number of members of fandom who are also very openly and comfortably gay, and and the way that that dynamic as well played into the relationship between fans and between the show and between JNT, you know, as the embodiment of the show, is is a theme there as well. So I think it, it is worthy. And look, let's face it, we've we've made quite a few notes and quite a number of dot points to cover. So it's not, <laughs> not as though we've 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 thought of this this theme and. Uh, struggle then to work out what to say we've got plenty to say there's there's loads to say and we and as i said earlier we have loads from our listeners to say as well so strap yourselves in folks yeah so look i might lead off and i think just go back to the conception of the show and talk about the fact that doctor who was created in many ways by outsiders Mm. um sydney newman although he was very much establishment he was a canadian Yes. In, in London, which, which again put him outside of that sort of establishment. And, and let's face it, he was often brought in to be the anti-establishment executive, you know, the one who would shake things up and do all that sort of thing and be the outsider. 
But the first producer, Vary Lambert, a very young woman, I think she had a Jewish background. Yes, that's right. Uh, so again, she's a young woman, a young Jewish woman in a in a very you know, white Anglo-Saxon man's world. Warris Hussein, who directed two of the first four shows, including An Unearthly Child, was both gay himself but also Asian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Coburn, who wrote The Unearthly Child, was Australian. So, you know, different sorts of outsiderness, but again, that that idea of a different outsider queer uh, thing coming through, I think is there in certainly the production of Who right from the start. Absolutely, Dave. You know, uh, even more Australians involved when you think of the theme music and, and such. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, that, that outsiderness, as, as you've put it, is a very interesting thing to, to think about with regards to the show. It, uh, it certainly wasn't an establishment show from, from the start. No, and it sort of permeated through the BBC as well at that time. If you do any reading on a particular topic of interest of mind of the Cambridge Spies, mm. you know, Burgess and McLean and, and, and that sort of group, th- there's a lot of talk about how the BBC was one of those stratas of the establishment that if you were a gay man, you could sort of go there and it wouldn't be necessarily acceptable, but it would be understood. Yes. Um, and and you know, there were a couple of places like that. So the BBC did have that quite gay, quite queer uh, establishment within it. And I think you see that as well come through. Do you think that's because there's a creative streak running through, you know, at least parts of the organisation, the people actually creating things? And that sort of sits well. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm not trying to use a cliche, but, you know, mm-hmm. the, you often see a lot of very creative gay people in, in the art scene, for example, and... and do you think that was it with the BBC? Yeah, I, I certainly don't think it can be a coincidence. I don't think it's entirely that, but I think it's definitely a part of that. Mm. Um, you know, but unfortunately, you also get a lot of uh, very closeted uh, gay and lesbian people working for the show as well, and and that sometimes manifested itself in you know quite negative ways. But there are a number of directors, for example, on Doctor Who. And I'm not not going to name them, but if you go through again Richard Marsden's book, he does talk about you know the the way you had these. Um, obviously closeted, repressed gay men, you know, married, living that sort of lifestyle, but come the show, uh, you know, or come their time at the BBC, you'd start to see that come out in ways that perhaps weren't always healthy, for example. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and later on, I mean, you do, you do get a number of, you know, uh, openly gay people working on Doctor Who. Victor Pemberton in the Troughton years was very heavily involved as a script editor and a writer and even an actor. Um, and in fact, his, his long-time partner, life partner, uh, played Tomney in the Abominable Snowman. That's right. That's right. I, I, I only uh, re-remembered that when we had uh, Pemberton's obituary recently. Mm. Um, and obviously, John Nathan Turner was openly gay. And he, you know, basically produced and was responsible for the last third of classic Doctor Who. Peter Grimwade uh, mm. was a, was a, a director. And again, you talk to some of the actors that he directed, and I think he's a fantastic director, wonderful director. But again, his approach to directing and his relationship with the actors sometimes was uh, not even not, well. Well, influenced is probably the right word by his sexuality and the way he interacted, for example, with Matthew Waterhouse. Matthew Waterhouse is convinced that it was you know influenced by his his sexuality. Mm, absolutely, and of course, uh, JNT's partner Gary Downey uh, gets involved as like a, a production manager type. Uh, type person on the show and also creating things like the Doctor Who cookbook. The first one, folks, not not the modern one. This is the, 
the classic Doctor Who cookbook. Uh, Gary Downey did that. And was he involved with the pattern book as well? I'm not sure. Oh, I'm not sure about that one. The cookbook was enough, I think. <laughs> yeah, the cookbook for sure. I have a copy here on the shelf. It's a classic. Uh, but even, you know, you look at a relationship with a show like someone like Ian Levine, who was a very big on the, the gay scene in London in the 80s. And he was a DJ at Heaven Nightclub, for example, which, mm. you know, was frequented at the time by people like Freddie Mercury and Kenny Everett and, you know, all of that sort of scene. But, you know, Ian Levine would be, on the one hand, giving John Nathan Turner advice on the scripts and being this unofficial continuity advisor. Then he and Gary Downey and others would all go down to Heaven Nightclub and, and spend the night there. And so in the same way that you might have, uh, you know, when we talk about Blake Seven, the fact that Paul Darrow and Chris Boucher loved Westerns, would go to Westerns together and that influenced the show. Mm. You, you can't then say that a whole bunch of the production team going to Heaven Nightclub and having a night, you know, that was their social outlet, didn't have some influence on the show. Do you think the change of the theme music to an electronic theme might have been influenced by, you know, dance culture and things like that? I could certainly imagine John Nathan Turner looking at those trends and saying, I want something modern and this is my understanding of modern. Mm. Um, whether I think, and I think it was also influenced by the fact that Peter Howell sort of had the, this, this new electronic stuff and that was the direction he wanted to go. But um, yeah, certainly, look, if you, if you want to talk about disco influences on Doctor Who themes... Shall we bring up Dimensions in Time? <laughs> Let's not. Um, <laughs> I'll throw in a new Who reference here to Heaven Nightclub, and that's uh, Matt Lucas in his uh, autobiography, which I talked about listening to recently, the audio version of it. He spends a lot of time at Heaven Nightclub in the 90s, as I recall, and talks about it in that book. Uh, yeah, it's a very influential place in that sort of history. I've been there a couple of times myself, and I must admit the last time I went, I... Um, I was flying home and I'd bought it the copy of the new edition of J&T's biography. And so I was reading that on the plane and it got to all these references to Heaven Nightclub. So I'm sending friends back in London, hey, hey, this this place we were at last night, like it's in this book I'm reading. <laughs> it's like a it's like a adult version of Travel Without the Tardis Day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, look, and, and obviously we haven't mentioned Russell T Davies, who if there's a pantheon of people who are uh, responsible for creating Doctor Who, the guy who brought the series back is very, very high in that pantheon. Oh, absolutely. And of course, if we're talking New Who, let's throw in Mark Gatiss as well. Uh, even throwing in the odd gay theme uh, into his stories. I'm thinking specifically because we talked about it last episode of The Idiot's Lantern. Yes. Yes, very much so. Mm. Um, and Phil Collinson, for example, uh, Gary Russell. Yeah. So, you know, producers, script editors, that sort of thing. So, yeah, there, there, there's no doubt, you know, when we get to New Who, yeah, there, there's no doubt that there is a very overt uh, strain of, 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 of queer culture there. And, and you know, Russell T. Davies did get um, an Order of the British Empire medal for his contributions, not just to writing, but, but to the gay liberation movement in the UK or the gay rights movement. That's right. Something he was very, uh, very happy about that it was for that, um, and not just being, you know, a TV writer sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, we'll talk about Russell in more detail. But yeah, I think what we're saying is there's definitely these these threads through the show and through fandom. Mm. Yeah. Oh, uh, absolutely. And I'd be interested actually to know if you know out there in our listenership, 
there'd be people out there, of course, you know, uh, and we know who they are. They'll be ticking these off as we go through them saying, yes, they got that one, they got that one, oh, they missed one, you know. But there, there might be other people out there, other fans who don't realise any of this has been going on at all because it just hasn't come across their desk. They're, they're just watching the show and they had no idea about the sexuality of a writer or whatever. It would be very interesting to know if we're, we're blowing some minds out there at the moment, Dave. <laughs> Yeah, that would be really interesting to get the feedback. Now, before we go on, Dave, I think we should take um, a moment to reflect on how queer folk have been treated on TV in general over the years, too, because I think that will help frame Doctor Who in a, in a very particular way as we as we talk about it through the decades, because certainly on, on TV in general, there have been different eras where certain topics have become more acceptable to talk about and, and so on. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, as you say, there are very distinct eras in television and there's been quite an evolution over time. Um, You know, for a long time, it was something that simply wasn't mentioned, but in the same way that sexuality wasn't mentioned, you know, you go right back to the whole, you know, one one foot must be on the floor at any time in a bedroom scene sort of attitude. And and (laughs) so, you know, you're not going to get anything. But what you do see through, I think, a lot of the 70s and the 80s is that you do start to see gay characters on television and lesbian characters, queer characters, but they are either comic mm. or they're tragic yes somebody like mr humphreys in are you being served who's never overtly stated to be homosexual but is played as the camp gay man for laughs yeah uh and you know you, you also get other dramas that do it um i can remember very vividly being about 13 14 and watching the bbc drama to play the king uh, being broadcast here in australia which was the sequel to house of cards and that has got a number of gay characters in them a couple of them are incredibly sympathetic, one of whom is incredibly unsympathetic. He's a, a, a Tory MP who's doing some quite unpleasant things with uh, young male youth. But, but there's also you know, a lovely couple, one of whom works, one of whom is the chief of staff to the king. But they're all played as tragic characters. And in the end, David Mycroft isn't able to be gay and work for the king in Buckingham Palace in the same time he has to resign from one to live the other life so there is this overtly sort of tragic difficult thing we were a bit more advanced in australia i think i think australia had one of the first gay characters in um what was the show number 96 number 96 i think joe hashem played a gay character in that yeah so we were i guess a bit more colonial in our views out there a little bit, <laughs> bit wild um Dawson's Creek was quite famous. Again, now we're getting to the late 90s. You know, don't forget that. We're into the late 90s here, where Dawson's Creek had a regular gay character, a young character. But again, his coming out was portrayed as a very traumatic and sad and unpleasant, realistic, but very tragic sort of circumstance. Um, so you know, that's how it was for a lot of the 90s. A lot of sitcoms at that time would do the gay panic episode. Uh, Cheers had one where there was a rumour that a couple of the people in the bar are gay, and everyone's like, oh my God, which ones are they? They could be sitting next to me right now. Oh, well, isn't this hilarious? Um, and then they're, you know, they're all shown, shown to be wrong at the end. Even Doogie Howser, which has um, Neil Patrick Harris as the star, um, who's now you know married to his husband with kids and a you know, gay icon in many ways. Even that had an episode of My Roommate's Gay, How Do I Feel About This? So the 90s were a very strange place. It's really not till you get into this century or just coming into it Buffy was very cutting edge and I'm sure mm-hmm. you you know a bit about that oh absolutely you you have things like uh, it sort of comes out of left field that uh Willow 
is is gay on the show for example you you start off the early seasons where it's like oh will she get together with xander they're these childhood friends they'll probably get together won't they oh no she's gay now she's got a girlfriend (laughs) yes although interestingly when we have parallel universe vampire willow she is gay Yes, and it's kind of a uh, maybe a, a, a hint, uh, quite mm. a big hint actually, to what might happen. And, and yeah, there are some other gay characters in Buffy as well. Um, Russell T Davies' Queerest Folk is kind of the touchstone, like turning point for you know de- depicting certainly gay and to a certain extent lesbian, but mostly gay characters living what Russell sees as a gay lifestyle. Now it's Russell's interpretation through drama of a gay lifestyle, but. That was put very much front and centre. And then there was a US version which went for five years and that sort of changed around. Uh, Will and Grace comes along where, you know, famously that show wasn't advertised as being about a gay lead character. They just put it on as a sitcom about this funny people, you know, these two funny friends and suddenly, oh, one of them's gay. Okay, let's go with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So yeah, the, the change was really in by then. Yeah, and all of which is to say that the real change in terms of having both the depiction of queer characters on screen, but beyond being just comic or tragic, all happens in between 1989 and 2005. Yeah, which isn't that long ago and isn't that long a period of time. No, and it does mean that the two series of Doctor Who, or the two TV versions of Doctor Who, kind of very neatly fall either side of that sea change in, in cultural terms. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I was also thinking, um, you know, that the current generation of younger people in fandom who are way more open and accepting to this than, broadly speaking, past generations have been, not coincidentally grew up on these episodes um, and these shows, maybe, you know, pointing the way for them to be uh, different to the past generations. Yeah, I think so, I think so. Although Doctor Who fandom has always been a very open and tolerant place and i think that's played its part as well oh absolutely doctor who fandom for sure but when i think of broader geek fandom absolutely yes you know you think of think of people watching superman in 1980 and the kind of fandom around that versus the kind of fandom for a marvel film today and their mm. attitudes the, the attitudes would be so different broadly speaking oh yeah very very much so <laughs> we'll dive in a bit more to the, the depiction of queer culture and queerness on screen uh, one thing that I think we have to say is that it hasn't always been a positive thing either. Sometimes you can use queer coding as shorthand for bad or twisted. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah, we've seen that in, in many shows, not just Doctor Who over the years, of course. No, I mean, look, Blake Seven, uh, one of the episodes we recently released was the first Travis episode, Seeklocate Destroy. And it's very much said in that that they dress Travis in leather partly to sort of because leather was meant to imply a twisted sexuality and so that was quick coding for this is a bad guy Mm. Um, and you know you see some examples one of which comes up in the novelization of robot where edward jellicoe is coded as being uh homosexual you know he 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 dresses a little bit too well he's a little bit too neat and a little bit uh effeminate and there's speculation i've read some in some places that that's not just to code him as gay and bad, but it's also to show, well, this is a guy who is subservient to Hilda Winters. Ah, uh, okay. And for yeah. a man to be subservient to her, well, he must be gay. Yeah, no, it makes me want to go back and read that now. I probably haven't read that since the 80s. <laughs> um, but that's just one example. 
where you do get it very much in Who, though, is, of course, the McCoy era, mm. where you have uh, not so much JMT, who really were tried to be very apolitical, and let's face it, asexual in Doctor Who. Oh, absolutely. No room for hanky-panky in the TARDIS and all that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're not having hanky-panky in the TARDIS, it doesn't matter whether, whether it's straight, gay, lesbian, bi, or whatever, it's not happening, and it's not necessarily an anti-queer thing. It's just an anti-sex thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but come the McCoy era where you've got somebody like Andrew Cartmore coming in wanting to sort of bash down the doors of society and supported by people like Stephen Wyatt and Rona Munro and um, Graham Curry and the like, you do start to see that. Now, if you want to go into that in a lot of depth, uh, I suggest you go to the Flight Through Entirety podcast and listen to their episodes on the McCoy years because they really have some quite insightful and interesting theories to point out there. One thing, for example, they bring up is that they say there's a very sort of queer theme that goes through all of the McCoy stories, including something like Time and the Rani, where they see the imagery of the spinning disco ball of death, uh, which, you know, in, in the story, okay, it kills you because it's got little CGI bees that come out, but, but the disco ball is very much associated with that sort of gay nightclub culture, which was very associated in the 80s with the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And, you know, was there a link there that the disco ball equals death is a you know reflection on AIDS. Um, certainly, when you get to the Happiness Patrol, there's some real you know queer readings of that show that you can you can make. Oh, a- a- absolutely! I guess the the TARDIS being painted pink, for example, <laughs> is is something that people were bringing up at the at the time. Let alone now as a, as a revisionist sort of thing. Yeah, and I mean the Happiness Patrol is all about repression, and they use the science fiction idea of repression via you know, you, you must be happy, you know, repression by, by repression via sadness. But that is just a sort of symbol for any sort of repression, including of, of queer culture and of queer people. And that isolation from society, I mean, that, that opening scene of that person who has decided they're going to leave society, they're going to drop out, they no longer feel that they can belong, they no longer feel they can be part of it, and they're executed for it. They're, they're you know, killed for it. Mm. Mm, absolutely, yeah. You can take that reading away from it uh, without doubt. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of there in the McCoy era, but perhaps if we look a bit behind the scenes now. Yeah, I mean, behind the scenes, we mentioned some of the production people earlier as being uh, outsiders in some way, and, and of course, Waris Hussain as being a gay man as well. But on screen, Richard Franklin would be, I would say, the first gay regular cast member would that be right Dave uh, look I don't have a list of them all but as far as I'm aware yeah he would certainly be the first and it's really interesting because looking back uh, a number of fans and, and indeed now even Richard Franklin have retconned Yates as himself being gay um, and in fact in the new adventures he ends up marrying Tommy from Planet of the Spiders yeah <laughs> Really? I, I've not come across the, the latter part of that. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I knew there was certainly a broad retcon uh, towards Yates being gay, but uh, not that he ended up with Tommy. Oh, that's news to me. Oh, bless. I hope they're happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's really interesting because you get all that stuff about, you know, he's going out for a night on the town with, uh, with Joe Grant. That's right. And yeah. you sort of sit there and you go, well, does that mean that he was asking her out on a date? Or is this the classic example of the young gay man who can't go out with other men, but he can go out with his women friends. Yes, yes. Which even still to this day happens. You know, I've, I've worked with many women over the years who love going out with their gay male friends. Yeah, it's the whole premise of Will and Grace, let's face it. 
Well, precisely, precisely. So yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, and indeed, even Yates's relationship with Sarah Jane Smith, again, you, you can see it that way in terms of it's the classic relationship of somebody who does not see Sarah as a sexual object or a potentially dateable co-worker, but mm. just as somebody he's completely uninterested in and therefore you know has that really special close relationship with, with her. And those scenes between Yates and Sarah in Invasion of the Dinosaurs can be read really well like that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, I, I quite like the, uh, the Mike Gates character, actually, uh, as a whole. Uh, yeah, um, Matthew Waterhouse would be the other one that comes up in the classic series. Of course, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting, again, very good set of memoirs. Matthew Waterhouse's Blue Box Boy. He talks in that about being very unsure about you know how open he could be about being an actor in Doctor Who and being a young gay man. And you know the fact that at that stage homosexuality was still illegal in Britain for people under the age of 21. Mm. And he sort of said, well, you know, what would happen if it made the front pages that this lead actor in this kids' TV show is going to gay nightclubs every night at the age of, you know, 18, 19? Can you imagine those headlines? My God. Yeah. Um, but, but of course, I don't think that really comes across on screen so much because, as we said, 80s who is just, particularly under Davison, but so asexual. Yeah, yeah, just the way that TARDIS team behaves with each other, the asexuality of it all, it's... He, he's just like an annoying little brother, I guess, to Tegan and Nissa, you know, nothing nothing more. Yeah, and, and as I said, it, it comes out later, like, Ace is allowed to have a sexuality, Ace is allowed to hit on men, um, but you can't imagine Tegan hitting on a man, you can't imagine Turlo hitting on a nice young lady, and even less so Adric and Nissa, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, that that that's right. I mean, gosh, he pulls Perry half naked out of the uh, the water and planted a fire, but <laughs> it just just has absolutely no interest in us. Like, my God, man, what's going on? Um, yeah, yeah, what an interesting time. You know, when we're thinking of Adric in the early '80s through to Ace at the end of the '80s, and I know the point you're making that you know Ace is allowed to be interested in men and such, and there's there's quite a few examples of that. But I think we'll get onto Ace later, uh, there's some possible girlfriend action as well going on there. There was a letter or an email from one of our listeners that mentions that, so we will be talking about it, yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, of course, again, we, we, we know, we're not just trying to sit here and create a positive or, or a negative message, but there were those negative rumours that I can remember from when I was in fandom. Um, there were regular jokes you know, about the fact that Matthew Waterhouse, many people don't feel is a very good actor, so therefore, the fact that he's gay, JT is gay, and he got the job despite his lack of talent in their view, may imply that you know there was a casting couch involved, and the same jokes that were made about women, and frankly, are still today, and I can't understand it, but some people do mm. make them today. You know that that was a joke, you know, running through fandom that Waterhouse got his job through JT's casting couch. Um, there were long-standing rumours, I think, well and truly debunked now, about Waterhouse and Anthony Anley, for example. Mm, yes, um, and and my understanding is that Anthony Anley himself wasn't queer in any way. He was just a very unpleasant person. Uh, you know, <laughs> he he wasn't a single, and he wasn't a lifetime lifetime bachelor because of any reason other than no one could stand him. Yeah, that that's a, a biography I actually want to read. That one that came out, I think Phantom Press might have put it out. Yeah, I've read that. It's uh, got some interesting insights into his character. Ah, yeah, I do want to read that. 
But um, yeah, look, you, you're right, and and particularly with with women, it's it's wider people say this. But I guess you then look at something like Harvey Weinstein and what's going on there, and there are just way too many women who are suggesting they had to provide sexual favors to him to maybe get somewhere in the organization. To not believe that this stuff does go on to some degree these days, you know. But we yeah. certainly wouldn't say all women getting all the big roles have to do it. Not not in any way, but it still seems to happen in some in some cases and hopefully we'll get increasingly stamped out because it's just not good. Yeah, and at the risk of really labouring that point home, but it is such an important one. You're right, Rob. On the one hand, you've got people spreading untrue rumours about women having to do things to get parts, whilst a whole industry is ignoring other women who have no choice but to do these things to get parts. Mm. It's just the worst of every possible combination. Yeah, and, and women who haven't done those things getting, you know, blacklisted, you know, like it's the 1950s or something. Mm, but uh, mm. e- even in the case of Lord of the Rings, I mean, part of this whole Weinstein thing is, you know, Peter Jackson being told, oh, don't hire this this actress or that actress, they're, they're bad news. And I think it was more because they just didn't have sex with Harvey Weinstein was yeah. the only reason he was told that. And then he's gone and not cast them into, you know, some of the biggest films of all time, you know. It's just mind-blowing. Yeah, it is, it is. Shall we move on to a few comments on the new series in general, Rob? Absolutely, absolutely. We've, we've dwelt a lot on the uh, the old stuff, so let, let's move on to New Who. And I guess the place to start, Dave, is to say that, you know, Russell T. Davis clearly brings in a, a quite a positive gay agenda. Um, I, I'm saying that in quotation marks because before the the series came back in 2005, people were saying, oh, there'll be a gay agenda as if it was a bad thing. But I think we're saying it in a positive way here. You know, there was a, quite a positive gay agenda. Uh, let's begin with, say, the character of Captain Jack, who is, I guess, pansexual, but, you know, he's certainly having gay relationships. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Robin. Just to reference both the points you've made there, there have been both positive and negative uh, reporting of the fact that Russell T Davies would put in this queer agenda into the show. Some people see it as a way for him to introduce into young audiences these sort of concepts and more tolerance, and that's a very good thing. Others, I mean, I can remember at the time, people were very wary that the guy who wrote Queer as Folk was now writing Doctor Who and that there was no place for queerness in Doctor Who and that they hope he didn't make it gay. And I remember saying to somebody over, over dinner once, I said, oh, you know, because this, this person had also seen Queer as Folk, I said, oh... Russell T. Davies are at Queer as Folk is writing Doctor Who and people are really worried he's going to write Doctor Who in a gay way. Like, how do you write Doctor Who in a gay way? And my friend just looked at me and said, I guess with a limp wrist. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but you're right. Captain Jack is really interesting to look back on because mm. on the one hand, I mean, from his first scene, he's shown as somebody who was attracted to other men. Uh, he has that young RAF officer and he you know, makes comments about what a nice bottom he has and all that sort of thing and clearly they've they've been oh, i don't know whether they've been dating but they've certainly been hooking up does he pinch him on the bum as well or tap him on the bum something like that yeah like it's it's really i mean it's, it's not subtle at all it's quite clear no. what's going on um and even in that story you have the um the man who's been having the affair with you know they, they think it's for the baker's wife but it's actually the baker or the butcher or something the guy who's got all the all the extra food that's right yeah um but but captain jack is interesting because they have a chance to put in a gay character and they don't. They put in a pansexual character and they do this whole sort of thing about, well, he's from the 57th century where this idea of male and female sexuality is just so old hat. And, you know, 
I think the Doctor has the comment, once you bring aliens into the equation, this idea of male or female is just, you know, becomes such a small thing, it's not even relevant. Mm. And I kind of wonder whether that's a really positive looking forward to the future thing, or is it a bit of a, like, we want to have a gay character, but we're not quite sure we can get away with it in Doctor Who yet, so let's kind of make him from the future and... Uh, pansexual and kind of hedge our bets a bit? No, you know what? I'm going to be really positive on this and I'll say if you've got him on screen kissing blokes, grabbing blokes on the butt, you know, being interested in blokes, it doesn't matter if he's pansexual because he's still doing the behaviours that are going to drive people crazy if he was just gay. Um, He's still doing all of the same things. And I think what davis is doing is reflecting society and back in 2005 people weren't talking about it so much it was certainly there but more and more i mean to talk about gender fluidity today is quite normal and there's a generation of kids to whom yeah you can have a girlfriend this month and a boyfriend next month and it it, it really doesn't matter there is this sort of gender fluidity going on and i think the show reflected it there uh, which I think is is really interesting, and that and that's the positive way I'd like to take it. That you know we're saying, oh, look, in the far flung future, people will just get it on with everyone else, and that's absolutely fine. I think it's already starting to happen, Dave. Obviously, it doesn't happen with every kid down at the local high school, but it's way more accepted, and way more kids are doing it openly than they once did. Oh, without doubt. I mean, I was at a high school where, in my year level, it was an all boys high school. In my year level, there were three hundred and thirty boys. And there was not a single out gay student. When you just know that... <laughs> we don't want to throw a percentage on it, but... But statistically, yeah. That, that, it is very unlikely that was the case. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And that's certainly not the case today. Uh, and again, Davis is very good at kind of reflecting and bouncing back attitudes and showing their, their, their silliness. Um, you know, there's that lovely little bit in Gridlock where one of the characters refers to the two married ladies as being sisters and they're like you know we're not sisters you know we're married stop pretending <laughs> and i remember seeing that as being a very much a, a, a kick to those people in society who do like no no they they can't be gay they're just housemates you know that sort of thing yeah so even though that was set in the future it's it's showing that that older generation older than us for example dave mm. who, who would live like that yeah but again it's very positive in showing a uh, queer couple who are not under 25 no no well that's right i mean let, let's throw in tilda and tibby from paradise towers there yeah i mean that's very much speculated upon that they were not just flatmates yes mm. <laughs> anyway i digress we're that, doing you okay. aren't we <laughs> we are we are i'm going to put up a slightly problematic moment in new who under davis's watch if i may okay now that's uh ricky from the age of steel who mm. was Mickey's alternate universe what you, duplicate, twin, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Mickey is obviously, we you know, a straight character and you know he, he was dating Rose, etc. In a cut scene from Age of Steel, Ricky, his parallel universe equivalent, is actually shown to be gay. And indeed, I think and it, it was going to have a relationship with uh, one of the other characters was actually played by a, a gay actor. This to me is problematic because if you assume that Mickey and Ricky are identical on a DNA level, then I worry that that implies that homosexuality or queerness 
is not innate. It's something that can be developed or, you know, it's to do with nurture rather than nature, which Mm. worries me because I think one of the few issues now, but the most important issue that still uh, LGBT people confront in society or sectors of society is this idea that it is a choice. It is not innate. And I think to, to portray that, well, this character grows up in this universe straight, but in this universe he's gay with the same DNA... I think that would have been problematic, and I'm actually glad it was cut. Well, that's kind of a more gender-fluid type thing, isn't it? It gets us down into that rabbit hole of bisexuality, and is that a real thing, and all that sort of stuff, or how some gay people look on bisexuality as like, oh, it's just a stepping stone, it's not a Mm. real thing, because you're really just gay, and you just don't want to admit it. Whereas I think with um, gender fluidity, I think there are probably people out there who really don't identify as gay or straight and they really don't think they are that's interesting i hadn't thought of it in that context and maybe that was where russell was going um as i say i'd always had that concern that he was uh leaving open that 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 view but no that's a reading i hadn't seen her of so interesting point yeah it's it's been a long time since i've seen age of steel because it's not an episode i particularly like at all no me either (laughs) um but i do remember that the uh the alternate universe mickey uh, or Ricky, I guess, was very, very close to that other fella that he was driving around in the truck with. Yes. Uh, I certainly had the feeling they were very close, maybe not lovers perhaps, but I, I think it still stayed in there that they were really, really close mates. Mm, mm, no, and, and maybe could be read as gay, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Uh, you mentioned Mark Gaddis before, but another one that I think really I remember striking me at the time was the young boy Tommy from The Idiot's Lantern, who... It's never implicitly stated whether he's gay or not, but I think it's a very fair reading of the show to assume that he was, and the, the reaction he gets from his father because of that is very much down to that sort of thing. And I think that would have resonated very powerfully with uh, teenage queer kids watching that show that you know are worried about that. That would have been quite a dramatic point, I think, for them. Yeah, and I think with, with Gatiss as the writer, I think it's it's definitely not a, an accident that it's there. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. And I mean, that was obviously set in 1952. Mm. And, and there's another one from season three where we get a couple of references in uh, Daleks in Manhattan. And let's face it, if you're going to do Doctor Who in New York, you've got to have a bit of gay in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. Um, and yeah, there's that lovely bit where Martha's talking about how you know the Doctor will never go with her. And um, the other lady says, oh, I get it. He likes musicals. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah. Which is quite a funny little gag. But there is a lovely little moment there as well where uh, the whole bunch of them are sort of going through the sewers trying to find the Dalek's lair. And the doctor says something about, he says to one of the women, something along the lines of, if it makes you any easier, you know, you can give me a kiss or whatever. And then he turns to Frank, who's played by Andrew Garfield, who will go on to be Spider-Man for a bit. Mm. Um, and he says to Frank, and you can as well, Frank, if you'd like. And Frank just gives him this really knowing smile of, yeah, okay, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's no more than that, and it could just be a joke, but it's those lovely little lines that just keep this sort of thing alive. Yeah, agree. But you know, Dave, for all the talk about RTD and bringing in the gay agenda and such, I think Stephen Moffat's era on the show might have brought in even more openly gay characters. Well, I could remember an interview with Moffat after he took the job where he said, if any fans out there didn't like the fact that Russell T. Davies had this so-called gay agenda, don't forget, I wrote Empty Child. I invented Captain Jack. So look out. Yeah. 
exactly right. And of course, we do have openly gay characters in in his era. Yeah, we absolutely do. Um, there's uh, a couple in. Uh, um, 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 that would be the impossible astronaut, Dave. Yeah, and in there, there's actually this lovely little clever twist that Moffat puts in, where you think that their unorthodox relationship is because they're two men, and it's actually because they're a white man and a black man. Exactly, yeah. Uh, We also get very casually mentioned a couple of, uh, I don't know what the terminology, whether they're they're army or clergy or whatever, I might get that confused in Moffat's era, but in A Good Man Goes to War, you get a couple of soldiers who are both men in in a relationship. Yeah, I remember that. Um, again, not an episode I go and rewatch all that often, so uh, <laughs> details no, are hazy. No, but I, yeah, I do admit, remember I, it. I had forgotten that one. I only only got it when I did my research. I haven't gone back and watched it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, the elephant in the room, Bill. Yeah. Now, didn't that set off a mixed reaction when it was announced that Bill was going to be uh, a lesbian? I was I was stunned by that, honestly. Uh, to be at this point in time I mean we've talked about past decades where it's been you know really really hidden or really not the thing to do and then it sort of slowly you know comes out if that's not too much of a bad pun to use but in this era of television to be like freaking out over a lesbian character oh my god no it, it blew my mind honestly yeah and there was also a lot of blowback over the fact that her girlfriend or partner was going to be called Heather Ah, well, I thought that was more anger at Stephen Moffat rather than anger at homosexuality. Yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> it was it, more Moffat taking, um, you, you know, a particular point of view that maybe Bill Hartnell wouldn't have approved of it, so let's throw in Heather, you know, that'll that'll really piss people off, you know, um, which seemed a bit childish. Yeah, and, and the unfortunate result was mixing all of those views together meant that it wasn't as positive and welcoming a vibe as it could be. Of course, you know, remembering that like any controversy, the only people who actually voice their concerns are the ones that are angry and have issues. All the ones that are just quietly going, yeah, whatever, cool, are just getting on with their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like most things on uh, social media. But but how good was Bill as a character and how well was that handled? I mean, it was it was just so natural. It was done absolutely the way it should be done. I had zero complaints about it. Yeah, it was really quite beautiful. And it was mentioned when it naturally would have been mentioned. It came up in conversations where you go, yeah, realistically, that would have come up in that conversation. Otherwise, it didn't. Yeah, and and she wasn't beating people over the head with it or anything. It was extraordinarily realistic to how... um, you know, as, as we go about our lives, any of our friends or colleagues would go about it themselves. Yeah, and it's also really important to mention that we've you know, been discussing queerness in Who over a number of years in, of the series. Predominantly, though, they have been male homosexual characters. And mm. to have Bill as a uh, gay character, but, but, but a female character was also, I think, a very important step and something that really hadn't been seen in the show much at all. No, not at all. And I, I think as she came into the show and as she proved to be such a great character, it was just such a, a marvellous moment for people out there who'd been certainly hoping they wouldn't cock it up and they didn't cock it up, you know. Hard to believe during Moffat's era for those of us who are a bit cynical about the way <laughs> he writes uh, in general and the way he writes women in particular, but he didn't cock it up. No, he it was really, really good. I still think 
Billy's easily the best companion of the Moffat series and possibly the entire new series. She would go very, very close, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, there have been a number of spin-offs, Rob, of Doctor Who. Can you think of any that might be in some way, I don't know, maybe you've subtly mentioned a queer sort of um, issue at any point? Oh, Dave, let me think. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, talking of elephants in the room, Torchwood. Let's just put Torchwood on the table, Dave. Yeah, what was your impression of Torchwood, Rob, particularly in that sort of sense? I think by the time it was over, everyone had done it with everyone else uh, for whatever <laughs> reason, either because they were really into them or maybe they were being tricked by, I don't know, alien technology or a weird virus or something. I don't know. But I think in one way or another, most of them got it on with most of the others. Uh, yeah, and certainly by the time of Children of Earth, Jack and Owen were in a very uh, intimate and, and genuine couple relationship. Yeah, that was a that was absolutely a proper relationship. It wasn't just a one night stand or something for comedy value or something that wouldn't normally happen. It was it was a proper relationship. And of course, spoilers when Owen dies, um, it's it's really really tragic for Jack. Yeah, it really affects him. It's really brilliantly done on screen. And interestingly enough, as well, they don't sort of hammer home this idea that Owen was necessarily a gay character. And in fact, he says to I think it's his mother or his sister or something. Um, look, I don't know whether I would call myself gay. I've been attracted to women in the past. I mean, let's face it, that whole thing in the Cyberwoman episode. Oh, God, uh, don't remind me. Uh, he just says... I'd... Hi, Chris Chibnall. <laughs> he just says, look, all I do know is that I'm genuinely attracted to and in love with Jack, and that is what it is. Well, again, some gender fluidity there, Dave. Yeah. But it's certainly not alone in terms of Doctor Who spin-offs having queer and gay characters. Uh, Luke, in the Sarah Jane Adventures, who was Sarah Jane's adopted son, was being set up to uh, come out as gay and be in a relationship with a uh, young man at university. And the young man, in fact, is indeed mentioned on screen. Uh, There's a bit where he's Skyping home and says, oh, I've got this really close friend, whatever. And that was going to be revealed to be a a gay relationship had Liz Sladen not tragically... Uh, died and you know the series had to end so that was one example i Uh, never knew that and does it make me seem like a horribly old man i know i'm about to have another birthday but that almost seems like a big concept to be in a kid's show because i see the sarah jane adventures skewing very very young yeah it was yeah very very much so yeah that 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 seems to be a huge thing to me that that's 10 times more uh, important or I don't know quite what the word is than, than doing it in Doctor Who for example and I believe it was actually done at the encouragement of the BBC who said you know we, we need to show more of these sort of relationships as being natural and occurring in life in our children's programming and so they said well hey Russell T Davies you're the man to do it um, can you do this he said oh, yeah absolutely I'll, I'll work this into the Sarah Jane adventures wow okay I, I didn't know that one uh, class, of course, Rob. Oh, class, absolutely. Uh, Charlie, the ostensibly the main character in, in class, the uh, the young prince from the alien world, um, is is absolutely in love with uh, Matthias, the young uh, Polish. I think he's Polish boy at uh, at school. Yeah, and I can remember us when we were reviewing that, Rob, being kind of amazed and impressed at that kind of really fun, wonderful moment where. Um, the the young lady wants to ask Charlie to the, the formal and she feels rejected. And then when he realises, when she realises that he's going to go with Matthias, it's like, 
oh okay i get that cool yeah, of course you don't want to go with me well whatever yeah oh absolutely and and who can have, of course, forget that uh, romp in the sheets too? Uh, yeah, <laughs> which, yeah, which really set the scene for class early on. That it wasn't this <laughs> four kids spin-off. My no, God, that was that was full on, wasn't it? It was, it was yeah. very even in an adult movie. And by adult movie, I don't mean a triple X movie. <laughs> I just mean a movie that adults would watch. It was fairly explicit for an adult movie. Yeah, it, it was. It was. It just shows how far we've come. But look, Torchwood clearly gay characters. Mm-hmm. Sarah Jane, gay character, class, gay characters, Canine and Company. I'm not saying anything about Brendan, but I'll leave that thought with you. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a good case for Brendan there. I, I'm convinced on that too. <laughs> um, we mentioned earlier, Rob, that a lot of the changes in pop culture and even well, society as well, attitudes to, to queer, happen in the gap between the old series and the new. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the Virgin books filled that gap. And they have got a lot of sort of references to this sort of thing being very gently woven in over time. And I mean, they were designed to sort of push against the envelope and they they do in that respect. Oh, look, absolutely. From all I know of the the series, and it, it's not as much as you might think, folks, and you'll learn that when we do our Virgin Books uh, special <laughs> in, in coming weeks. Uh, but from what I understand, yes, absolutely, it was it was something very important coming into society, uh, increasingly on television, as we've already discussed, and it was creeping into the literature there as well, which was skewing more, not so much adult, but I think certainly at least young adult. Yeah, and if I could give a couple of shout-outs, uh, one of them is to Gareth Roberts, in who wrote a number of missing adventures, but... Uh, uh, the plotters and, and indeed the uh, the partner of Doctor Who magazine editor Clayton Hickman mm. um, so yeah, another example of somebody scripted for the show who, who was openly gay Gareth Roberts did a historical novel set during the Hartnell years set during the time of the gunpowder plot with James I who most historians suspect probably was homosexual and Gareth Roberts portrays him as such and that's a really interesting example of how if an actual Hartnell television story had done a historical that included a gay character that would not have been mentioned. But when the Missing Adventures did it, it's like, well, of course, James I was probably gay. And so Vicky's dressed up as a young male person because, you know, they do that whole heart-earlierish stick of, oh, the female person's wearing pants. They must be a guy then. I can't tell a woman if she's wearing pants. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they have James I hit on her. Yeah, it's interesting to go back and see old stories or, or, or old eras, I should say, through the prism of um, a more modern take on things. It gives us more of a rounded story, I think, and a better story. Uh, yeah, and the other shout-out I want to give is to the new adventure, Bad Therapy, which is one of my personal favourites. I've mentioned it before, but that has actually got a really uh, wonderful and lovely gay character in it, um, uh, uh, who, uh, the, 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 whose, whose boyfriend is killed off fairly early on in the story and that sets up the story for him. That's actually a really lovely little portrayal that you get from the uh, mid-90s. And I notice in our notes you've written it down as bed therapy. That wasn't Freudian, was it, Dave? <laughs> so I have. No, that is, genu- <laughs> that is genuinely a typo, I promise. <laughs> All right, let's move on because we're having some fun now. It might be fun, Dave, to discuss who are the Doctor Who characters we think could have been gay just for a bit of fun well i'm going to open the bidding with one that i'm absolutely convinced is there uh from the 1970s mm-hmm. giuliano and marco from mask of mandragora yeah i'll give you that <laughs> it's interesting when giuliano introduces marco he does so as his companion 
And I, 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 there's nothing in there that says that that's not the case. And I think it's very, very much there. But if you are thinking that and you read the scene where Marco has been tortured almost to the point of death in an attempt to get him to betray Giuliano, and he won't do it, you know, he won't betray this person. If you think of that as them being lovers, not just friends, it takes on an even deeper, more significant meaning. I think I think it's there. Hmm. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. I approach this topic more from the point of view of looking at the list of companions and particularly looking at the JNT era and thinking of how asexual it was then and, and indeed how asexual Doctor Who's been as a whole. I mean, JNT didn't invent that concept. Doctor Who has always been reasonably asexual with the companions and such. And I started to think what companions could be gay not even with with overt references in the show i mean there are some where we we just have to assume that they were they were straight you know like barbara and ian going off together we assume they were a straight couple but i think of someone like liz shaw could liz shaw have been a lesbian yeah that would work yeah i i I think it's entirely you know possible probable it would work I've got nothing to uh, support it. I'm not going to pull out any lines of dialogue that suggest, oh, they were really trying to make her gay. But I think Liz Shaw works great as a gay character. Okay. I've got another less serious one, however. Okay. Uh, Oscar Botcherby from The Two Doctors. Ah, well, sweet Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I must admit, I originally, when I watched that as a kid, I thought that he was in a relationship with... um... Now, who's the young lady in that? I can't remember her name, but the, the young yep. Spanish lady. But yes. watching it as an adult, it's very clear that that's not the case. And he's this this incredibly camp, terrible actor that goes <laughs> goes around quoting Hamlet. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. absolutely right. I'll throw in Turlo. Okay. You know, we were talking earlier about how he pulls Perry out of the ocean planet of fire. And I was making a little gag there. I, I'm not referring specifically just to that. But just in general, just that general alienness of Turlow, um, it's almost a blank slate onto which I can throw anything, really. Uh, and much like Charlie in, in class, I think of this, you know, humanoid alien possibly being um, queer as well. Mm, okay, I can get behind that. Uh, mm. One that I think is supported by the script is Gilbert M. from The Happiness Patrol. Yes, of course. Um, and I'm not sure quite what they're trying to say there, but um, <laughs> yeah, certainly it makes his relationship with the Candyman uh, an interesting one. I'm not, not saying that there was a relationship there, but that sort of concept. And he does run away with um, um, Helena's husband. <laughs> well, it's pretty overt. <laughs> Joseph C., that's right. He runs away with Joseph C., yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, in, in doing this exercise, it just makes me think that because so many of these just are so asexual or blank canvases you could almost retrospectively go back like gosh can we drop a spoiler for solo no probably not No, probably not no but if i can just talk broadly a character in the hand solo movie is now pansexual you never would have thought of him as that way in the past or her <laughs> I, I don't know who you're talking about yeah that's good means it wasn't much of a spoiler okay but that's an example of going back and retrospectively changing someone's sexuality or maybe not so much changing it but maybe making it more defined and uh real oh well yeah i mean look you know taking that sidestep mark hamill has openly said that there is actually nothing that says that luke skywalker couldn't have been gay 
That's another good example. Exactly. Mm. So that that's the kind of thing I mean. When they're not so well defined in that area, you can go back retrospectively and say, well, that, that could have been, you know. You think of Ben and Polly, and you think, well, probably maybe Ben wasn't. I mean, well, gosh, he was a sailor. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> too close to the bone. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, Tegan. Could Tegan have been gay? Oh, I could make a good case for that. Well, and that, this is what we're saying. I mean, all of these Jay and Tegan companions with the exception of Ace, are very overtly asexual. So you can kind of paint them any way you want. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Whereas I think in the modern era, I don't think they do that so much because if they want to make them gay, they just make them gay. Uh, yes, that's exactly uh, exactly right. Yeah. Um, I've got one other pair that I want to uh, throw in, and this is more of a fun one again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hunker and Tandrel from Mysterious Planet. <laughs> which you've just been watching recently which I've just been watching and again I don't think it's what Robert Holmes necessarily was intending but watch their dialogue and their bickering as though they are a long suffering married couple and it really adds another dimension to that show I would contend <laughs> I can see it I can see it for sure one character of course that we did miss is Midshipman Frame who we're led to believe ends up with Captain Jack at the end of uh, the Russell T Davies era. Oh, of course he gets past that note. What is it? His name's Alonzo or something like that. Yeah, and I, I highlight that one because Russell Toby is uh, himself an openly gay actor, but he is somebody who actually has made the point that as a young gay boy growing up, he said, okay, they were starting to show gay characters on TV, but none of them were like him. He's a very you know, uh, stereotypically masculine or straight acting, if you want to use that term, gay mm-hmm. man. And he said, nobody in television is this. If they're gay, they're very flamboyantly gay. And yeah. something that he has done a lot of his, in his career has actually been to play these more, in inverted commas, straight acting gay characters, like, I guess, Midshipman Frame, to show, hey, kids, you know, not only are they gay characters, but they're all different. They're not all Mr. Humphreys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. No, that is a really good one to bring up, and I'm glad you did. Now, Dave, before we get on to our um, feedback for this episode that we've pulled off Twitter and Facebook and and other places, I guess there's really one question remaining that we haven't touched on. I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but it's the question of why Doctor Who has such a gay following, and not just in the modern day when they're doing you know, things like having Bill on the show and and being very overtly gay-friendly. But even going back, as I said, to the 80s and Doctor Who parties and I was meeting, you know, gay men for the first time and all this sort of stuff, there has always been a real gay following in fandom, Mm. particularly. Do you have any thoughts on that? Over the years, I've heard many explanations given by straight people. Mm -hmm. I've never heard a really good one given by gay people. Is that right? Uh, yeah, um, and so I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are, Rob. At the risk of being another thought from a straight person. Yeah, though. yeah, no, I, don't, I don't mean to sort of um, <laughs> paint, paint you in that way. Um, actually, well, yeah, so look, what, what, I guess, guess what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think mine, you know, is, is not anything new coming to the table here, um, and it's one that people have repeated. It's probably one of the ones you've heard before, and it's just that the way in which the Doctor is such a different kind of character, he's not a big blustering macho character which is not to say that you know queer viewers out there might not really love big blustering macho characters you know and such but 
because he is different and solves things without guns and is, you know, kind at times to his companions, except for the Colin Baker era, of course, um, he, he presents as this very uh, different kind of hero that I think uh, kids who feel very different themselves, you know, at, at, at their school or wherever it might be, their sporting club, can sort of latch on to and go, hey, this guy's different and he's, well, he's not gay, but he is different like me and I like that. I like that he is different but smart. He's different but respected. He's different but gets to have all these great adventures. That's for me. And that's like a point of view I've heard many times over the decades and which has always sort of had a, a grain of truth for me at least. Again, not to say that queer viewers can't enjoy overtly macho, ridiculous stuff, you know, like James Bond or something. Yeah, look, it's a perfectly reasonable, logical, sensible view. Uh, I've just never heard any gay person I've spoken to express it. Interesting. Okay. Um, and I think one of the things that I would push back on there a bit if we're chatting about it is a lot of fans actually discover Doctor Who before they discover their sexuality. Ah, okay. Fair. So, so I wonder if there actually is a correlation. Sometimes it might be something as simple as Doctor Who has always been designed to appeal to the nerd in the, you know, the nerd, you know, the, the, the kid who maybe isn't as good as, uh, at sport, but is always putting their hand up wanting to ask a question. And mm. whether that means that you know, gay people are more likely to be in that group, not remotely holistically in group, but more, more, more likely maybe is more of it. Uh, it could just be a case of um, they get into the fandom more because it is someone that is friendly and supportive. Uh, and it might just be a case of the fact that uh, if you... Uh, comfortable with being gay you're actually comfortable with you know um liking other stuff it's like i remember a friend of mine when he turned 40 he turned to me he said one of the things about being 40 dave is i now feel comfortable enough in my sexuality that i can admit i like kylie minogue <laughs> and he felt Very you good. know for, for, for 25 years as a straight man he couldn't say he liked kylie minogue because it was a little bit too effete a little bit too feminine but once he was 40 he's like no no i'm 40 married kids i can admit to the world i like kylie <laughs> <laughs> and maybe if you know you've already accepted that you're 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 a queer person, um, liking Kylie or Doctor Who actually isn't as big a step. I don't know. I don't yeah. think there is an answer to this, but it is certainly a phenomenon. Yeah, well, it's certainly going to be different for every person. So to paint in broad brushstrokes probably Absolutely, you know yes. does us all a disservice. However, we are quite right in saying that it Doctor Who and Doctor Who fandom has always had this really strong gay following this undercurrent you know it's always been there yeah i agree mm. well what did you out there think our listeners as i said we got feedback on twitter we got feedback on facebook we got feedback on email and we've got a ton of it dave so shall we rip into it uh yeah so the first comes from nathan bottomley at nathan bottomley on twitter who is of course one third to one quarter depending on the episode of the flight through entirety team <laughs> g'day nathan uh, and he says is that a thing? I can't say I've ever noticed it before. <laughs> <laughs> and to anyone who listens to their program, we'll know why that's funny. <laughs> yes. James Farrow, J.M. Farrow uh, on Twitter says, you should do a straw poll of the John Pertwee Appreciation Society to find out how many are gay. I have no idea if that's an in-joke or what, but okay. <laughs> it's It's gone over my head too. Is it? Is it that they're all gay or none of them are gay? I'm, I'm not sure what he's saying. No, no. Thanks, James. <laughs> Uh, we had a tweet from David Ross, who tweets at David G. Ross Zero, and was in fact my predecessor as president of the Doctor Who Club here. Is that right? It was. 
uh, he says, because I asked, you know, where, where were their classic or where were their queer themes in Doctor Who? And he says, in the classic series, I felt there wasn't anything overt, but there is a certain subtext. New series, I think Bill Potts is a great representation compared to Captain Jack, whose interest in men was either played for jokes or downplayed compared to Torchwood. I said, what subtext do you see in the classic era? Back to David. And he said, survival with Ace and Kara. Amelia Rumford and the backpackers from Ark of Infinity are a few that I can think of. Really good examples there. And we'll talk about Ace, I think, in a, in a moment with a longer letter. Mm. Um, Amelia Rumford and uh, Vivian Fay very easily could be read as a lesbian couple. Yeah, completely agree there for sure. Um, as indeed could the two young backpackers in the Ark of Infinity. <laughs> Which you've brought up on podcasts in the past, I remember, Dave. That's Colin right. and his mate. Colin and, I don't know, the other guy from the Ark of Infinity. Yeah, yeah the other guy. <laughs> we haven't watched that one very often, have we, Rob? <laughs> no, no, even though it is a Davo episode, not one of my favourites. Uh, this is an email, Dave, uh, from Ben P.M., not to be confused with a private message, his name is Ben P.M. Uh, he says, Hey guys, Kronos is the first intersex Doctor Who character that comes to mind. Other than Joe saying, But you're a girl, I feel they were very blasé about the fact that Kronos could change sex and form, which seems fairly progressive for the early 70s and is a way of approaching the kind of character that I like. There is, of course, the issue that an unusual being doesn't need a defined gender, but every other character in the show does. That being said, Season 9 did see Joe start to shake off the whole Eek, help me, I'm a useless female that she'd been written as previously and begin to become an exciting character. She tackled the Master as Atlantis mm. was falling and the Doctor started to treat her more of an equal instead of talking down to her like he did in some of their earlier stories. Maybe the early 70s were more progressive than I realised. Going back to the gender fluid thing, I never really thought about these things when I watched Doctor Who as a child, but the presentation of difference as normal may have subconsciously influenced viewers to be more accepting of difference in real life, which is a good thing. Bill Potts being a homosexual companion in the most recent series was handled very well. Not over the top or offensive or silly in any way. She was just a solid character and that's part of who she was. I hope that ramble made sense. Love your show. Thanks, Ben P from Perth in Western Australia. Thank you so much, Ben. And as I as I wrote back to Ben, uh, Dave, before we get into discussing his actual letter, um, we've never heard from Ben before. He hasn't tweeted us or written to us in the past. It's lovely to hear from new listeners. If you're a new listener out there, we don't know you exist. Write into us. It's a real thrill for us. Yeah, that's a really good thought there. And, and yeah, that, that sh idea of Kronos being sexually fluid or, or intersex, yeah, is a really interesting idea, a really good example. He's right. And uh, mm. one we hadn't thought of. Yeah, no, great one, Ben. We have one from a regular contributor, Mike Solko. Mike says, Hello, gentlemen. I'm very much looking forward to both of your upcoming episodes. I had no idea until my late teens that Who fandom had such a large gay following until I started viewing Outpost Gallifrey, Rickart's Doctor Who. Gee, Rob, Rickart's Doctor Who. Wow. <laughs> it's a blast from the past. <laughs> and the various mentions that would come up in DWM or Virgin Nonfiction titles. As I've only come into attending conventions and such over the past few years, it just feels to be a wide spectrum of folks, all treated with respect in most cases. It seems odd when the random anti-LGBT voice appears in fandom and makes me wonder if they've understood the series at all. As to characters I appreciate, the matter-of-fact way Chris Squedge's sexuality was portrayed in the novels was appreciated, although did allow for stark contrast in some novels down the line. 
Wait, which topic am I replying to? <laughs> I absolutely ship Amelia Rumfeld and Vivian Fay, as the kids may say. I wonder if the subtext around Ace would have been an actual text had the new adventures come out nowadays. Bill was a great start as the first openly gay companion. Here's hoping we get a male companion at some point before too long. Thanks, Mike. Mm, well, there's some talk of the new adventures, Dave. Do you think they would have been more overt with, with Ace or maybe with characters in general if they came out now? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's, a, it's good thoughts there from Mike. The next bunch of comments comes from a Facebook group called TARDIS Australis, and the subtitle of the group is Doctor Who Down Under. So that gives you a feel for what it is. Basically an Australian Facebook group for Australian fans of Doctor Who, although it does have some overseas folk on it. I threw up the same question you'd been throwing around on Twitter, Dave, you know, just saying, you know, on our next show, we're going to do Queerness in Doctor Who. What does that mean to you? Does it have a disproportionately gay following? Who are the characters you've loved the most? Who are LGBT and, and so on? And we've got a we've got a range of uh, answers here. So I'll do the first one from Fess Parker. Hello, Fess. She says, well, in season 11, we had a predominantly gay female actress who really hit home about sexuality. She was a great asset for Capaldi. And in my opinion, it was about time we addressed any type of sexuality in a great show. We also found out a change in the timeline of the Doctor that he could regenerate as either male or female. This ability was rarely mentioned in the original Doctor Who, but became common knowledge when Moffat took over New Who, and then Chibnall, who was supposed to be a Whovian of the highest order, give us a female Doctor. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I suspect if we were doing this podcast in 12 months' time, that would have been a really overt point we would have made um, you know, with Jodie Whittaker's tenure as the Doctor just a few months away. Absolutely. So thanks again, Fez. Another comment from the same source from Isabella Robinson. I've always thought it's pretty impressive that the writer of Survival, Rona Munro, gave Ace a girlfriend in 1989, no less. While for obvious reasons they weren't able to make it super obvious back then, it's pretty easy to tell nowadays that it was more than just a friendship between the two of them. I love how casually and frequently LGBT plus characters are put in the show, without it being a big deal. I'm not surprised that it has such a large LGBT plus following, as people are naturally drawn towards people who resemble themselves. That's very good. And, and you know, sometimes it's not overt that these characters are that way, but the, it's certainly showing that the show is friendly towards that kind of thing. So I think that's another good reason why people may be drawn to it. Yeah, and so on the point that Isabella there makes, it's a really good one, and we've been saving it for, for this, this email. The relationship between Ace and Kara in Survival is portrayed uh, not overtly as a sexual relationship, but... It could be read as such, and certainly as a liberating and sexually awakening sort of moment for Ace. That's right. But at the same time, we've also talked about how Ace is interested in guys. She is way into Mike in Remembrance of the Daleks, for example, and uses her sexuality against the uh, the, the Russian guards in Curse of Fenric, although that could come from someone who wasn't into guys but was just using their sexuality. I digress. Um, could Ace be the first gender-fluid companion, Dave? <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, I, 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 yeah, yes is the answer. Um, yeah, there's a number of ways you can read that. But yeah, really interesting point that, again, we could spend a lot more time on. But yeah, thanks for raising that, Isabella. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steve Pinozzo, Australia's leading caricaturist. Hello, Steve. Steve has got a different point of view here. It's a bit of a long one. 
It's never bothered me whether characters in Doctor Who are gay, straight, or otherwise, as it's never been an issue. The only issue has been whether they are a good or strong character. Sexual motivation is not what the show is about, nor should be. It's about adventures in time and space. As for fans, I don't know why Doctor Who has a lot of gay fans, but there are obviously are plenty of them, and pretty much all of them are brilliant people. I've never categorised any of them as anything other than fellow fans. For example, I've never delineated between gay fans and straight fans. That would be stupid. Besides, who they're attracted to is their business. Likewise, there have always been gay actors in Doctor Who, but they've all been brilliant in their roles. Their sexuality has been irrelevant, as they have only ever been judged on the quality of their performances. Bringing overt sexuality into any kind of an adventure show like Doctor Who runs the risk of getting in the way of the storytelling. So far, things have been carefully managed by the various production teams, with any overt references quickly relegated to pointlessness in relation to storylines. I like Doctor Who's essential innocence and purity. The social awareness has always played second fiddle to the fantasy of running away into time and space. Long may it be so. Now, I'll jump in first, Dave, and say that I know that you have this thought in general about Doctor Who, that it's about fun adventures in time and space. But I'm not sure if you might agree broadly with this email either. I think I take Steve's point, and I do agree that Doctor Who must always, first and foremost, be a fun adventure in time and space. And if it doesn't do that, everything else is kind of pointless and Mm. kind of tedious. That said, whilst you're having those adventures, if you can put a little bit of message in there, you can put a little bit of social commentary in there, whilst not detracting from the adventure, I think that that's not a bad thing. And, you know, he makes a point of it not getting in the way of, of the story. And, and I think, well, Bill is a perfect example of that, as, as has been mentioned many times, so I won't labour the point, that it was just there and it just was, and it just didn't get in the way at all. Yeah, look, I agree. And if I can talk a bit about the Happiness Patrol, for example, we mentioned earlier, I think of all of Classic Who, the one that has the most of a queer content would have to be the Happiness Patrol. I mean, look at the title, for example. Yeah. As a kid, or even just as a viewer, you can watch that and not get any of that content, not get any of that message at all, and just have this adventure on this planet with this, you know, dictator who needs to be defeated it's just an adventure with a candy man and some and fifi and black people and all sorts of things going on you can look at it and go oh okay there's a bit of a queer agenda going on here i could see how they they could be representative of that you can look further and and look at uh how the attempt at an allegory of thatcher which as i said before i don't think quite works but you know that is a reference to the fact that thatcher did pursue a policy that did not allow homosexuality to be discussed in schools mm. uh, and that was that was quite a repressive thing that has long since been repealed um you know she was very much against the lowering of the age of consent for gay people to be equal to straight people uh now i i, I will make very clear that i think that is just one strand of thatcher and i'm not here to defend thatcher I, I could but i won't but you know that that was definitely a very poor policy and poor judgment of her and you can read a lot of that into the happiness patrol but it's there to be seen and if you don't see it it's just another fun adventure Exactly right. Um, you know, much much like the, the X-Men films. I mean, the X-Men films, if you watch them, have got some very overt uh, gay allegory in there. I mean, you know, you, you actually, for God's sake, in X-Men 2, you have a coming out scene where the X-Men sits down with his mum and tells him and tells her that he's a mutant and, you know, gets the whole, well, son, have you tried not being a mutant? Like, it's there. <laughs> now, if you're not looking for that, you can just watch that as a fun comic book movie. 
but it's there to see it if you're looking for it or want to see it. Yeah, agree. Uh, the next one we have is a shorter one. This is from Barry Compton, who says, I would say Captain Jack, just a very interesting character all over and introduced very well. Couldn't disagree with any of that, Barry. Mm. And finally, Ashley Senden. She says, I loved Bill. Bill, Ace and Sarah Jane have been the best companions. And I couldn't agree more. Ah, yeah, all very, very good. Well, actually I could. I could throw in Polly, but, you know, we won't, <laughs> we won't split hairs. <laughs> well... I think that wraps up our episode for this month, Rob. Yeah, I I think we've covered a lot of ground there, Dave. We didn't go too deep into each rabbit hole, but I think that enabled us to really talk about a lot of people and a lot of storylines and a lot of situations and and just give a, a quite a broad overview to it for people out there. Yeah, so hopefully it's been an interesting chat for you. And yeah, we look forward to hearing any feedback from you. Absolutely. Usual addresses on our Facebook and Twitter or just email hello at the dwshow.net. So we've got a few things coming up over the next month, Rob. We do, and I'm not involved with all of them, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I think our, our next piece, I uh, well, maybe I'll do a preamble to it, but that's about it. Uh, yes, we have always reviewed the Star Wars films as they've come out, and we will be doing that again with an episode out sometime next week. Uh, Rob, you're declining to appear on this one, but... My friend Richard will be joining us for this. Yes, Richard from the uh, Blake 7 podcast that you do, Dave. I'm, I'm looking forward to sitting back and listening, trust me. And as to why I'm boycotting Solo at the theatre, tune into that episode and I'll tell you at the start. That's right. Uh, later on in the month, we will be having our long-promised episode on the Virgin New and Missing Adventures. Yes, Dave will be going through the uh, the entire range and telling me why he likes it, and hopefully I'll have some intelligent questions to ask, and it will be a nice lead-in for people who might want to get into it. And then in a few months' time, I'm looking forward, Rob, to you leading me through the BBC books. That's right, the Eighth Doctor Adventures, the best range of books. <laughs> so, Rob, next episode, we're going very traditional. We're going to look at season five of Doctor Who, the monster season, because I've got this theory yes. that there is no season of Doctor Who where fandom's opinion of it has swung so wildly from one end of the spectrum <laughs> to the other. <laughs> uh, you know, it's been discovered basically in the last 20 years, almost from nothing. We'll talk about that. It's the Victoria Waterfield season. And again, I can't think of a companion about who fandom's opinion has swung so wildly back and forth from extreme mm -hmm. to extreme. So there's a lot there. There's a lot of cool monsters, some interesting stories. We're going to dive deep into season five of Doctor Who. Not just the stories, but all of the stuff that goes around them. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And I guess with the, the latter half of this year being taken over by New Who, obviously with Jodie Whittaker's first season, it'll be good to do some, some episodes that touch on uh, the older stuff for the next few months, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll probably have a, a new series one in there sometime. Uh, later this year, we will be having our Hartnell episode because you got your Davo episode. <laughs> yes, I did. We promised this year I'll get my Hartnell episode. But yeah, it's not too many weeks and months until we're going to be reviewing... A new season of Doctor Who. Just mind-blowing. And look, quickly, speaking of Davo, if you flick over to uh, our friends at New to Who, on the same day this episode goes out, their Enlightenment episode goes out. This was recorded in Sydney back in January when uh, we met up, Dave, and we met up with them as well. Uh, recorded in person, and I'm on that episode with them, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what I said, because I've forgotten what I said back in <laughs> January, to be quite honest with you. Uh, that'll be on their feed as you hear this episode. Yeah, always uh, good to 
catch up with the new to who guys and yeah i was sitting in the corner watching that episode be recorded so it'll be interesting to see how it comes out i hope hopefully they've edited me to sound intelligent <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> All right, Dave, that's it for this episode, folks out there. Hope you enjoyed it. I've been Rob. I've been Dave. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash the DW show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.